Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories. We celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peter Santoscano. Welcome to Episode 74 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, July 29th, 2022. Hello there. I'm grateful to spend some more time with you today. Now, you may have noticed the last two episodes of our show are longer than usual. Today's will be two, but starting next month, we return to our 30-minute format. It's just that some stories require a little bit more time to tell. That's definitely true for today's episode. We take a deep dive into two topics that, for many people, might seem to have nothing to do with each other. Through five guests from North America and Africa, we look at climate change from the perspective of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender non-binary, and queer people. This includes exploring how LGBTQ plus people are affected by extreme weather in ways that are different from non-LGBTQ plus people. We hear about a new study that reveals these differences. One of the study's authors provides recommendations to promote climate justice for LGBTQ plus people. We also consider what LGBTQ plus people bring to the table when it comes to taking on climate change and its impacts. Now, if you're not identified with any part of the LGBTQ plus communities, that's totally fine. During this episode, we'll definitely broaden your understanding and hopefully we'll give you new perspectives. My guest will definitely help you look at new ways of communicating climate change. And if you are LGBTQ+, and also a climate action figure, welcome home. I have found it rare to be in a space that affirms both these identities. As part of this LGBTQ+, deep dive, you will also hear about Good Energy Stories, a consulting firm giving guidance to Hollywood writers and producers about how to tell better climate stories. The creative director is gender non-binary, and one of the writers is lesbian. They will talk about how they contribute to more effective climate storytelling. And we have good news about a new resource available to help LGBTQ plus people, and all people, better prepare for the impacts of climate change. First, though, we need to agree on language. Now, I prefer to name the various identities represented by LGBTQ plus people, but it is a mouthful to say lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender non-binary, and queer people in every other sentence. On today's show, my guest will use the shorthand of either LGBTQ plus or queer. I recognize that for some people, the word queer is loaded with negative connotations. While it is now widely used in academia and among some younger LGBTQ plus people, it is by no means universal. Earlier this year, I had a fascinating conversation with a young climate communicator. Isaias Hernandez is better known on multiple social media platforms as Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias lives in Los Angeles, California. As someone who grew up in a community that faced environmental injustices, Isaias developed an interest to learn about his environment. 
living in Section 8 affordable housing, using food stamps growing up, and witnessing pollution affect his body, Isaiah turned his anger and sadness to become an environmental educator. He does this as a full-time content creator and public speaker. Honestly, I had been waiting for this conversation for over 10 years. That's when I first became engaged in climate work. As a gay man coming into the climate movement, I felt I needed to bring my whole self. At that time, I met very few LGBTQ plus people also engaged in climate work. At the People's Climate March in New York City in 2014, I felt like a speck of lavender in a sea of green. Chatting with Isaiah, though, encouraged and challenged me. Today, I will share our 30-minute conversation in three 10-minute sections. In between, we will hear from two other queer people, an American, Leo Goldsmith, co-author of a groundbreaking new study. It's called Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of Disasters on LGBTQ Plus Communities. And from South Africa, you will meet a black queer person who sometimes identifies as a woman. Noquanda Masego will explain more about that. She also tells us about the challenges of pursuing a just transition in regards to our energy, economy, and society. We begin with the first part of my conversation with Isaias Hernandez. I'm an environmental educator and the content creator of Queer Brown Vegan. It's an environmental educational platform. What are some identities that are important to you that you have? Being queer, being a person of color and someone who practices veganism, I think these identities and these values have greatly influenced the work I do and how I approach my environmental work. So I've been a queer activist since around 2003, and my earliest activism was around conversion therapy. I was in conversion therapy for 17 years, and when I finally came to my senses, I began to speak out as a as a witness to the harm of conversion therapy, and we started the ex-gay survivor movement. And we helped to shift the national conversation about conversion therapy. From there, I went on to do activism around gender and the Bible. I'm a Bible scholar, and I look at gender non-conforming Bible characters. And that was important work to do because there's like seminaries and churches like they barely could deal with the gay thing, but like non-binary and just even looking at gender, they needed a whole new vocabulary. And then I was wanted to go and go back to become a high school teacher like I was. But then about 2012, I just got blown over by climate change because my husband, who's originally from South Africa, he was just crushed by the data. His breakdown led to my breakdown, which led me to take a year off because I knew nothing about climate change. I didn't come from an environmental background. I was just all about queer issues, those sort of human rights. And I didn't think I had anything to do. But then I realized, wow, no, this actually is about human rights more than anything else. That's when I realized I had skin in the game. And I began to ask the question, what's a queer response to climate change? I'm just so thrilled to meet another queer person who cares about climate change because it seems like, like, I don't know, a lot of the queers are just like, it's not on their radar. They're like living on another planet. And I'm just wondering for you, what's a queer response to climate change? 
I would say that it's applying a multidimensional lens and recognizing that the liberation of living systems are interconnected, right? Both the human and non-human animal, the living materials like rocks, water, the natural elements that make us for who we are as beings in this planet. And specifically a queer response to me in response to the climate crisis is first recognizing how these interconnections are made, right? I think that for a lot of queer people, they don't often say, well, I don't see myself as an environmentalist. I think we need to recognize that our own existence is part of the resistance to create this regenerative just world. And if you look back into rich cultural history, you'll see that many queer and trans and two-spirit communities have always existed prior from colonization and still exist today. And I think that when we really erase those histories due to this heteronormative society that punishes the what you would call the otherization or the the othering of a different worldview, we get this distorted fact and this severed relationship with ourselves in the environmental movement saying, I don't see myself in the environmental mm-hmm. movement. The other thing I, I really emphasize is the fact of when we look at many of the injustices that are that are created by by heteronormative values, whether that's social, racial, environmental injustice, we have to recognize that in a natural landscape, right, when a queer or trans sibling is harmed or faces violence or is murdered, you're ripping someone away that has contributed to religious, cultural, and spiritual wisdom to that landscape, and that is erasing part of what is making that living ecosystem regenerative. I also say that, like, even if you make these interconnections, right, whether you look into the psychiatric, industrial complex, the military, immigration, prison, all of our queer and trans siblings are currently facing the highest rates of violence and environmental contamination when being imprisoned by these industries. And so this goes into the question of, like, well, what does this have to do with LGBT issues? Well, it has to do with the fact that no one should be living in an imprisoned system, that we should abolish these carceral mindsets, but also recognize that if we're not able to extend ourselves to those who are even the most vulnerable to the climate crisis, which are composed of our siblings that are queer and trans, then we may be losing biodiversity and the future of our world. In almost every one of your posts, you really do a great job of going out of the way to identify as a person of color and speaking about Black, Indigenous, people of color. Can you talk about why that is such an important commitment for you? When I was young, I grew up in an environmental justice community. My parents had immigrated from Mexico and We lived in subsidized housing, lived off food stamps, and lived nearby toxic facilities. You know, I lived right next to the Metrolink station in San Fernando Valley. That generated a lot of noise pollution. So at a young age, I already realized that I grew up in poverty and that the current resources that I had in my community were very different from different communities across Los Angeles. I would say that the emphasis between before Black, Indigenous people of global majority is obviously to recognize that historically black and brown communities have been dumping grounds for toxic facilities, for environmental policies, for companies to create more facilities or have more permits to pollute. It's often known that communities of color have not as much political regulation or strong political power to protect themselves from these 
types of instances that they are polluted. And so for me, it's really personal because of the health issues that I've developed as I've gotten older, high levels of stress, heavy breathing due to like pollution in my body. Like these are all the long-term effects for me. And when I emphasize the importance of these communities, it's meaning that I don't believe anyone should live in a poison environment and, and pollution starts by looking and examining at white supremacy and how it has created hierarchical roles in the way that we oppress each other in this system. Yeah, when I was a kid in the late 60s, early 70s, we lived in Stamford, Connecticut, and there was tons of pollution and I had super bad asthma. Uh, you know, we were an Italian-American working class family. But we were able to move to the country where a relative lived, moved to a predominantly white neighborhood from a predominantly black neighborhood, and we were welcome. But I know at that time, and even today, it's hard to flee some of these places because of all of these systems of oppression that keep people locked in place. There's also the the terror that can come by going to a predominantly white area that is hostile. As a child, what options did you have in regards to your own health and development being surrounded by so much toxin? Yeah, this is such a great question. I would say that the amount of resources I had in my community were very limited. You know, I, I grew up recycling cans with my mom in the neighborhood of Los Angeles. And the recycling economy is out there in L.A. and New York City, wherever you go, right? But I would say that at a young age, I realized, like, these are really, these are things that no child should be doing. When I was 13 or 14, my father would take me to go create gardens and landscapes for his work on the weekends with my older brother. And we'd go to rich cities in LA, like, you know, Bel Air, Beverly Hills, Calabasas. We'd go all of those places. And I, I remember clearly just always going to these rich homes that had so much, you know, natural resources and amenities and affluence. Just seeing the kids who are my age looking at me clean their backyards, realizing we definitely live in a different world and landscape, even though we live in the same region. The amount of resources that I was given as a young child were stolen from me. You'd go to the hospital, you had Medicare. Medicare obviously has its own issues, right? Like it does help in some way, but it, it has so many issues. And I remember just always being dismissed by doctors of like, it's just a panic attack. It's just a panic attack. And it was just kind of like, so this is normal for me to, you know, run outside and within five minutes, I can't breathe. You say I'm overweight, but then there's other things of like that are contributing to this. I just learned how to normalize injustice and recognize because your parents are poor or they didn't work hard in life, you deserve to live this way. And so I just kind of accepted it. I was just like, well, this is who I am. This is my life. I can't really change it. So I felt defeated. And I think it wasn't until the end of high school when I got into college right, the pipeline of like going to college will change your life. Like it does in some ways, but it's, it's not going to liberate your pain, not going to liberate your community's pain. Like I recognize like this is an opportunity for me to take back of what I, what I experienced and to be vocal of these issues because I realized had I not been more outspoken as a young child, maybe there, my life opportunities would have been different. But I often feel that a lot of kids and like teenagers normalize it because we're not critically challenged to think outside the box or sometimes the educational systems that we partake in don't cater to that. They just make you feel indoctrinated to the existing systems that we live in and to accept it for what it is. 
And the way so many cities are set up, it's it's really challenging to to go into other parts of cities, or particularly when you're young, right? And so what you see is what you assume is the world. And I remember interviewing Taiki James, who's one of the founders of Black Birders Week. And he said it was when he was a teenager working for the Parks Department that he began to do birding expeditions. And then he saw like how radically different all these neighborhoods were. He finally had access to some places in the city that he didn't normally go. But I think we can grow up in, in a world and just assume, well, I guess that's that's the world. And I think that's true for lots of queer people, right? As we're coming to understand our queerness. You can hear my interview with Taiki James in episode 59 of Citizens Climate Radio. I hope you can hear why I'm excited about chatting with Isaiah's. In the next part of my interview with Isaiah, he tells us about his own journey as a queer person and talks about what LGBTQ plus people bring to the table. But I first want you to meet two other guests. Leo Goldsmith is in the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C. Um, so I identify as pansexual. I'm a trans man. I'm Latinx. And I am a cat parent. I just have one. His name is Ham Ham. <laughs> And Nkwanda Masego is in the South African capital of Pretoria. I am a queer Black woman. I don't necessarily always identify as a woman, but I think that's one of those big identities that exist within me. That particular identity helps me to frame how I decide to live my life, but also how I do the work that I do. As much as it, it sucks being a member of a marginalized community, at the end of the day, I think it does also then help you to build some character and decide for yourself how you want to make an impact in the world. Probably growing up extremely poor as well just helped me frame how I think about um, the economy in terms of what does equitable distribution look like, um, which is then why I have now ended up doing work that and I always like to describe it as at the intersection of climate change, just transition, obviously, gender, as well as industrial policy. But yeah, I am a queer Black woman, and so that is one of the major driving identities for me and I suppose right now I'm also trying to be a poultry farmer. I'm busy looking for my chicken that ran away. But, you know, it's one of those things that happened. <laughs> it's funny because it's been missing for a good two weeks and then today it shows up. But then my dog was around. So then, you know, she started chasing the chicken and now it's disappeared again. So I'll just wait another week or so for it to come back. When not chasing down a lost chicken... Nokwanda keeps herself busy with work that seeks to shift the South African national economic discourse. She worked for the South African Treasury, and now she is a senior economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies, or TIPS. TIPS is an independent, nonprofit economic research institution established in 1996 to support economic policy development. 
At the moment, I call myself an economist, which is true. I did study economics. I did development economics for my master's. And so now I am essentially working as a as an economist. I'm a senior economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies. But prior to that, I was a budget analyst at the National Treasury. I was essentially responsible for the social development work. So managing the administration budget for the social security agency that does social grants. The topic of justice came up over and over in my conversations with Leo and Aguanda. I've been involved in a lot of environmental type work even back to when I was in high school. And so like the environmental issues, especially environmental justice issues, have always been kind of front and center for me. It wasn't until I graduated from college, which I went to Oberlin College, and I have a BA in environmental studies, when I started working with the New York Restoration Project, doing ecological restoration for a park in Inwood, New York City. I started reading more about climate change and like climate justice issues and like some of the intersections between that and environmental justice that I started thinking about, oh, like, you know, this is such a very pressing issue. So getting involved in like climate change activism and then thinking about just like how bad it's going to be. That's when I started trying to connect it to more so like marginalized populations and started thinking more so about like, okay, but also like my communities, how is it going to affect them as well? South Africa is a very complicated country given um, the history of apartheid and what that did in terms of concentrating our economy and mineral resources, but also what it did and then making sure that Black people in particular are kept outside of the mainstream economy. What does the transition have to do with justice? I think it has everything to do with justice. That's something that I've been trying to drive across. So I wrote a policy brief, I believe it was last year, So the one policy brief is on just transition and gender and trying to find like a gender just approach to the just transition. And then as part of the Presidential Climate Commission, I I wrote another policy brief around unemployment and sustainable livelihoods. So essentially trying to figure out how to have the conversation in the context of the just transition. And my fundamental problem there right now is that obviously the just transition is is a fundamentally labor-based conversation. It's a fundamentally labor-based approach that, you know, comes from coal conversations in the state. In the context of South Africa, we have to consider that One, most Black people are left out of the mainstream economy. Yes, they might be working. Mostly it's informal stuff, working in someone's house, for example, as a domestic worker or sitting by the corner with, you know, your small cardboard box that says painter. So you're waiting for someone who's looking for a painter to come and hire you or you're doing something else. The thing there is that, yes, we have in whatever way been involved in the economy as Black people, but 
it's been so marginal that we have not necessarily been the biggest driver of emissions in the country. Granted, the majority of emissions in South Africa come from energy generation, so ESCOM, which is generated by like coal. So about 75% of, of our energy comes essentially from coal. The name ESCOM is not popular at all. It's the name of the national energy company. Because of neglect, corruption, and mismanagement, South African homes and businesses are without electricity for two to four hours a day. Black people have not necessarily been at the forefront of these emissions with that context in mind. I grew up in a rural area. It was not until I was about 11 or 12 that we had electricity at home. There are people right now living in areas where there is no electricity. Even those emissions from coal, they don't necessarily always come to the benefit of Black people. That said, if if we step away from the energy conversation as a start, you go to transportation, for example, and all these different sectors. Again, you find that the people that are going to feel the impact of climate change the most are Black people. But you have to consider that in the context of there's so many things that we have to address for, that we have to solve for. So right now we're talking about the just transition. And as I was saying earlier, my fundamental problem, well, not problem, but I think the gap there is that we're so focused on what do we do about the workers that are going to lose jobs. We're not thinking about the fact that there are people who don't necessarily have jobs, the majority of whom are Black, who are then left out of the just transition conversation. It's also there for women, which goes back to the policy brief I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the gender one. So in in, in that particular brief, I say that women cannot transition from jobs that they do not have. In the context of everyone, people cannot transition from jobs they do not have. And so how do we then talk about this as a just transition if we're only talking about a small proportion of people in South Africa. As you know, we have very high unemployment. And so that tells you that the conversation about the just transition, if we're just focusing on labor, is about that small subset of about 14, 15 million people out of a total population of almost 59 million people. And so what does a just transition look like in that context? It, it, it has to be about justice. It has to be about how, how do we take care of the people that have contributed the list to climate change, but are going to feel the impact the most. And we're seeing that in terms of the biophysical impact of climate change. We're seeing that in the droughts, we're seeing that in the constant flooding, what's happening in KZN right now, for example, um, what's been happening in the Western Cape and Cape Town. With the history of white supremacy in South Africa, even after the end of apartheid, Nkwanda points out how much work needs to be done. 
But what about in the USA? I asked Leo about environmental justice and environmental racism. I'll start off by saying that race is one of the biggest indicators for where environmental pollution and injustices occur. Environmental justice, to me, is the way that I would define it, is basically that there are certain communities that are disproportionately impacted by environmental pollution and climate-related events. That tends to be those who are low-income, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, LGBTQ plus individuals. There's much more identities based on marginalization that are also affected. So this could be from like in polluting industries or impacted by, you know, poor wastewater management, heat, and, you know, hurricanes, as we like we saw after Hurricane Katrina and all of that, and many other hurricanes since then, wildfire, etc. I kind of got more interested in the environmental justice aspect of climate change because it's those who are the most marginalized are going to bear the most burden of climate-related impacts and also have the least adapted capacity to protect themselves from those impacts and kind of bounce back after all of the the same systems that perpetuate settler colonialism or white supremacy or homophobia or transphobia and also the destruction of the environment and the perpetuation of climate change all come from the same root cause. That's something that has been failed to be connected, especially among environmental scientists and climate scientists, but also on the flip side of those who are, you know, studying like queer and trans theory, those two things, both environment and also queer and trans individuals and theory hasn't necessarily been connected yet as being caused by the same thing or even interconnected or interrelated. In this episode, my goal is for us to connect these climate, justice, and LGBTQ plus issues. In a moment, Isaias Hernandez tells us about his own story as a queer person engaging in environmental justice. We look at how LGBTQ plus people are directly affected by the growing impacts of climate change and the concrete steps we can take to address the challenges. And you will hear about a new initiative that helps writers tell better climate stories in movies and TV. Stay tuned. Are you looking to improve your skills as a climate communicator? To increase your impact in your community and beyond? Or maybe get a brush up on climate change science basics? Citizens Climate offers free online trainings. You can choose from pre-recorded interactive trainings that you go through at your own pace or join us Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time for live trainings. To see a list of our trainings, visit community.citizensclimate.org. At the top of the screen, click on resources and trainings. There you'll find a link to all training topics. That website again is community.citizensclimate.org. What was your own journey as a queer person in understanding who you were, accepting that, and then kind of making it public? By the time I was 13 and 14, I was beginning to question, like, what does identity look like? And why is it the fact that in religion, that was only supposed to be male and female? And it was almost shunned as if, like, there was two females dating or two men dating. And so I think that by the time of the end of high school, I had to come into acceptance that, you know, perhaps I was bi or gay or whatever that may have been ident- the identifier at the time. And 
I recognize that, you know, I, I may lose friends. And I came out during prom with my friends, actually, which is really <laughs> funny. And um, it was really sad because a lot of my guy friends that were straight were so extremely homophobic mm. and were making, like, um, homophobic remarks, like, jokes about me. And I was just, like, and all the women in my life that I told, they were like, oh, I'm supportive of you. I'm here to help you if you need help. And they're like, even though I'm straight, like, you know, I, I support you. And so I, I would say that by the time I got to college, when I got into university, I was like, you know what? It's fine. High school ended. There was weird homophobic people. That's okay. And when I got into college, I was like, I'm going to just, just say who I am. And honestly, if they don't like me because of my sexuality, that's fine. I'm here to get my degree. And so I would say that because I came out of such an early age, I felt confident in developing myself throughout college as a queer person, not knowing, not having to be like, oh, am I gay? Am I not? Like, it's just saying, yes, I'm queer. This is who I am. I like men. I, um, I exist on the spectrum. And honestly, I feel that, you know, through my experiences with other queer communities in, on campus and being able to meet other queer friends, it really built this sense of community and acceptance for me. And I would say later on in life, you know, coming out to like my mom, it was really hard at first. But I, I think that she accepted me for who it is because she had realized, you know, over the last, you know, decade that we had been grown up together. And, you know, she raised me. She realized, you know, I, I was getting older and I had to also think about my career. I had to think about my family. I had to think about other things. And she recognized, I think, at one point where it's like, you know, he's old enough to know what he wants to do and he's mature enough and he's safe enough. and I think for her, it was more about, I just don't want you to get killed as a queer person. That's what scares me as a mother. You know, this queerness and this acceptance of my identity has played a huge role in my environmental work because I'm able to enter different rooms and just say, I'm queer, brown, vegan. And like, if you have an issue with my queerness, like, you know, let's interrogate that. And let's challenge that. Like, why do you feel so threatened when I just walked in and just introduced myself? Like, is there something that makes you feel uncomfortable about me? Because clearly I'm just talking to you as a normal person. And and that's a really bold, clear choice. And I'm so grateful for that. And I made the same choice too when I first started getting involved with climate work. I was like, oh, you know, it's a very straight spaces. What do I do? And I was like, mm -hmm. no, I need to go in as my whole self. And I'm queer and I have some real strengths because of that. And to tamp them down would be a mistake. I would not be giving my all. So what is it that you think that queer people bring to the table in environmental justice work, in climate work, even walking into a predominantly white heterosexual environmental space? What queer trans communities bring to the climate justice space is multidimensionality and to be able to go beyond this heteronormative worldview and also the binary view of this, the way that we look at living and non-living systems and recognizing that all systems are living, right? Their influences in communities into ensuring that future younger generations that are looking on us, not mentors, but the people who look up to us, like, are looking for representation to be able to reclaim their narratives, are able to be able to reconnect with their natural relationships with the world of how they, how they view themselves in this environment. But I would say, Specifically, queer and trans communities are able to build and create resiliency and regenerative systems. And one way to look at this is understanding, right, when natural, when not even natural disasters, but when like floods, wildfires, tornadoes hit, right, 
what do we do when those natural disaster relief camps are rooted in homophobia and transphobia? Because the majority of the workers who are at the shelters of these workers from Red Cross or whatever you may call it, really hold deep Christianity values, right? And nothing wrong with that, but it's wrong when it goes to the fact of like you're discriminating against someone who's queer and trans trying to seek refuge. And then no one talks about the violence mm-hmm. within those camps, right? Like people are heavily misgendered. They are harassed. They, they are violated in so many ways. Like these are things that we have to kind of recognize that when we being queer and trans communities into climate policy, into shaping this, that we recognize that the people that are going to be protecting us into craft policies are the ones that understand the most safe spaces for people because at the end of the day we, we are still going to be stricken and we're going to be hit and i think um we really kind of raise the fact of like oh well it's just people of color it's like no it's people of color people of color who have disabilities mm-hmm. um who are queer and trans who are undocumented who are you know compromised like these are all like identities that make up individuals and we need to understand that we cannot erase one without the other we need to ensure that there's this holistic interconnectedness perspective of how we approach the work. Yeah, absolutely. And I I wonder, and I don't know this if it's true or not, but I wonder if queer, Black, people of color, Indigenous folks, I wonder if they're more engaged in adaptation work and resiliency than other folks uh, who are maybe more affluent. Because if you're having a hard time on a nice day when the weather's good, well, what happens when the shit hits the fan, right? I mean, you're already mm-hmm. having a problem with housing. You're already having problems with the police or whatever, but then there's a, a natural disaster and then a state of emergency. So it seems like queer people of color, queer trans people of color just have more to lose in those situations. And so therefore, I don't know, have you been seeing like in regards to preparedness and all more engagement by by queer trans people of color? When a lot of people have this anti-capitalistic framework or are introducing themselves to abolition theory, like myself, I'm really learning about it, so I am not an expert on it. But I would say that a lot of times people think, oh, burn it down, like break it down, break it down. But a lot of queer and trans communities are like, yes, we understand that these existing systems have breaking down and literally killing us or harming us that we've been building outside of the system. And this looks into like queer and trans farms, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a lot of queer farm ecologies happening now because why? Because food justice and queerness is obviously an interconnected issue. Like how do we sustain our communities? What is the sustainability of queerness in this movement? Well, it's like, well, we need food to nourish ourselves. Or if you look into um, mutual aid funds, right? Like these are all started to create these resilient mm. projects, whether that's art or cultural storytelling, like these all have a heavy influence in being able for our survival and to be able to unlock those solutions for us. So I would, I would say that there's a multitude of them, but I would say that, you know, seeing how me seeing how many queer and trans folks are building farms and building other projects, it makes me happy. Yeah, and hearing you say that, I'm just reminded, you know, it's not our first rodeo. We've had to look after each other for for generations and generations and form alternative family and and create, you know, all sorts of spaces for ourselves in a world that wasn't accommodating in any way. So in in a way we've got history behind us to contribute to to the adaptation work. For some people, with when the COVID pandemic started, for some more affluent 
white, cis, heterosexual folks, it was such a shock because it was the first time they experienced serious isolation or uncertainty. And it was like they weren't prepared because they just haven't hadn't had a whole lot of suffering up until that point. But the reality is that, you know, we're all in the same boat together, but we're definitely not in the same deck. Some of us aren't even in the boat. We're in the water. For queer, trans, black, indigenous people of color, there's all kinds of issues that people have been living with since before birth. And you've mentioned a number of them yourself with, you know, environmental injustice and poverty and, uh, you know, difference and racism. And so you don't have to answer this question, but I'm just wondering, how do you deal with all this shit? Yeah, no, this is a great question. So I would say that, you know, like you said about the pandemic, like I think it was a shock for everyone, right? And it's continuously contributing to people becoming disabled and how our current system that we, how it, how it upholds ableism, right? Like is treating those individuals. But I would, I would say specifically like the way that I've, kind of managed through it is that yes like a lot of people of color like a lot of people who grew up poor people who are queer and trans people who are disabled like they've normalized injustice their entire life whether that's social racial environmental injustice and those experiences have shaped us the way that we're able to internally and externally react to these situations and so i would say specifically for myself the way that i've been able to manage through this is through family relationships right Mm. because myself growing up a lot of the times I didn't have a car. I wasn't allowed outside my neighborhood because I didn't have money to take car Uber. Um, my parents didn't feel safe for me to go take the bus. So I was always in this very small room. And I, I would say that when the pandemic hit and I, I moved back home with my parents, like I, I recognized that like family time for me was a way to create a new relationship with them, right? Um, I would say like repairing bonds and repairing relationships was really what 2020 and 2021 introduced me to. And I, I really love that because I think that my younger years of, you know, leaving the house at 17 and go to college, you know, there's, there's so much growth that has gone over the last five years that I'd ask myself, wow, when was the last time I actually got to spend every day with my family, even though they annoy me sometimes, <laughs> like, how do I spend the most of this experience? So. I would say that community is a lifeline for me. And for a lot of us, I think we just ended up connecting with our community or our best friends to be able to hold ourselves grounded because yes, it's an emotionally damaging period. And I I think that community is what helps us. Isaiah has more to share about community and about the powerful role of LGBTQ plus elders. Leo and Nkwanda echo much of what Isaiah has been saying about the challenges LGBTQ plus people face. Leo helped research and write a study that specifically looks at climate impacts and LGBTQ plus populations. He co-authored the study with Dr. Michael Mendez, Assistant Professor of Environmental Planning and Policy at the University of California, Irvine. Also co-writing the research was Vanessa Raditz, a PhD student at the University of Georgia. Our study was called Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of LGBTQ plus Communities During Disasters. So the study is basically outlining how it is that LGBTQ plus individuals at our higher risk for impacts during disasters 
either due to the fact that LGBTQ plus communities tend to occur in populations that are considered vulnerable populations during disasters, such as those who are homeless, um, impoverished, lack health insurance, higher rates of mental health issues or chronic illness, and also incarceration as well. So a lot of LGBTQ plus communities face higher rates of incarceration. And then what are the drivers of the inequities and bias that occur within federal disaster policies and response? And so we outlined that inequitable federal policy response, particularly through FEMA, is a main cause that the lack of inclusion of LGBTQ plus families, especially chosen family within policies, is another cause. Also, faith-based organizations and the reliance on faith-based organizations and disasters as being another issue for LGBTQ plus communities as well. And then at the very end, we outline our policy recommendations, which include policies, working with community-based organizations in order to provide resources and training for disaster preparedness response aid, providing funding for organizations that are doing that. There are several queer and trans funding organizations that specifically provide funding and aid to LGBTQ plus individuals during disasters find that as the disaster is occurring, that they are running out of funding and resources because they're not given that. And so there's just a need for public-private partnerships to occur in order to provide the most resources that will then go into LGBTQ plus communities. I have long speculated that LGBTQ plus people, by and large, are more vulnerable to climate change and its impacts. Whenever I mention this in public presentations, though, a lot of non-LGBTQ people and queer people were surprised and skeptical. I heard, but I thought we won the battle to get married. True, although that fight is not yet fully settled in the USA. More importantly, there are other major issues and concerns that still undermine LGBTQ plus safety, security, and equality. Your point about, you know, now that we have marriage equality, that kind of like the fight is over. (laughs) However, in the media, there tends to be like a portrayal of queer people as being, you know, white, cis, and affluent, when really the community is extremely diverse along, you know, race, age, gender, ability, etc. The LGBTQ plus community actually faces high health, social, and economic disparities in relation to cisgender heterosexual populations. The term cisgender, or cis, which is spelt C-I-S, refers to people whose gender matches the sex a doctor assigned them at their birth. So in my case, I am cis or cisgender, and I happen to be a gay man. When I was born, the doctor looked at me and, from what he saw, declared me as male. All my life, I've always felt and lived as male. And transgender? According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, Transgender people are people whose gender identity is different from the gender they were thought to be at birth. Trans is often used as a shorthand for transgender. Of course, there are multiple ways to present as male or female. Later in this episode, you will meet E.J. Baker, who identifies as gender non-binary. The National Center for Transgender Equality explains gender non-binary this way, quote, Some societies like ours tend to recognize just two genders, male and female. 
The idea that there are only two genders is sometimes called a gender binary because binary means having two parts, male and female. Therefore, non-binary is one term people use to describe genders that don't fall into one of these two categories of male or female. Outlined for me some of the specific ways LGBTQ plus people are affected by extreme weather events. One of the biggest ones that I can think of is access to shelters in a way that is affirming and safe for LGBTQ plus individuals, especially for transgender individuals who are discriminated against either by not being allowed to access shelters that align with their gender identity or facing verbal, physical, or sexual violence within shelters. There is like such a huge need for very consistent non-discrimination policies across all temporary emergency shelters and also shelters in general, and also competency training for staff members to be able to actually be able to provide care for those individuals. And not only that, but also having LGBTQ plus affirming spaces like community centers that are specifically LGBTQ plus to be able to have the resources and funding to become a temporary emergency shelter during disasters. There's a lot of stories either provided from the news or in like academic journals that have outlined some of those discriminatory practices that can occur. Of course, now with the Biden administration, there is protections for LGBTQ plus individuals, but that's only because they only use the term sex in their policies. It can be defined in a, a bunch of different ways, depending on what type of administration is in power. So it's good for now. But if a more conservative administration, at least in the United States, happens to define sex in a much more conservative way, then that's all out the window. Within the LGBTQ plus community is a growing number of senior citizens. This group has needs that are often overlooked and not part of disaster planning. For elderly populations, what really comes to mind is this generation gap that has occurred in which older generations, because they grew up during a time with much more criminalization of queer and trans people, that more people were disowned from their families or were closeted or they, they have lived through the AIDS epidemic and therefore lost a lot of friends and chosen families throughout that process. And so what we've been finding for older LGBTQ plus individuals is that they're much more socially isolated, face a lot more mental health and chronic illness problems that can be exacerbated during disasters. It's very critical when focusing on climate change impacts on elderly population to really include LGBTQ plus individuals and their specific needs that are unique to that population, but also, you know, acknowledging that chosen family is something that's extremely critical for LGBTQ plus individuals in general, but especially for those who are elderly. And what was the most surprising outcome of the study? There is such little data on LGBTQ plus individuals, like just, just none. <laughs> so like, of course, the US census does not capture sexual orientation or gender identity data. 
So in order to understand environmental injustice, we have all of this data on where disasters are occurring, but we don't have d- uh, data on where LGBTQ plus individuals are living. Without having those two things, it's very difficult to show, for example, on a map with like many other issues that this is for sure occurring. We only have stories and firsthand accounts of what is happening and also kind of some of this background information on like health data or economic data. But we really need that other piece. We need that extra data to show quantitatively that this is actually occurring. And that like survey de- methodologies for collecting LGBTQ plus data is so limited and at the very beginning stages. There's a lot of work being done, but it's definitely something that needs to be continually updated and involved. Noquanda Masego affirms this need for more data. We know about the violence that queer people face. We don't necessarily know about what kind of resources they have, what kind of needs they have. I mean, some of the more obvious ones, just in the context of a world that's full of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia and general queerphobia is housing is always going to be an issue. Whether or not there are legal protections, at the end of the day, if you get kicked out of home, you've got nowhere to go. And part of the reason you've got nowhere to go is that I don't necessarily think the Department of Social Development has thought of queer people as a group that requires some kind of assistance So we've got shelters for battered women and children, for example. We've got youth shelters, but we don't necessarily have shelters that are dedicated to queer people that have been kicked out of home or shelters for queer people that just don't have any particular place to go. One of the things that I worry about is the increase in the violence that queer people experience in in times of natural disasters. I reference in the Just Transition and Gender paper, following Cyclone Idai in Southern Africa, what we generally find is that women and queer people then become more in danger of experiencing physical and sexual violence in times of crisis, especially natural disasters, for example. What does it look like in South Africa? I I honestly don't know the answer to that. As I said, it's because we haven't done the work of actually talking to queer people that are not me. We haven't done that work. And I know Iranti, the organization that looks at queer issues, they have been trying to have this conversation, you know, also noting that Nothing at all was mentioned in the State of the Nation address about any programs or whatever it might be for queer people to get a proper answer to that and an honest answer. It would have to start with understanding what the needs of queer people are, what dangers they face outside just the violence that queer people face for being queer, what are the other things that they face on a daily basis? And because we don't have access to that data, I would honestly just be extrapolating from random experiences, I suppose, if I said this is the answer to that. In this last part of my conversation with Isaias Hernandez, the queer brown vegan, 
We talk about these challenges for LGBTQ plus people, including seniors. And he talks about the power of community building in order to create climate resiliency. Public health officials say that people who are in close-knit, united communities before a natural disaster hits, that more people survive. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there's such a need for that. Obviously, we've been forced at times to create alternative spaces and communities for ourselves. But I think I often think it's another skill that we bring to the table. I mean, like we're not the only ones who can build community, but you know, we have experience with that. A lot of the times power in the dominant culture signifies the dominance I have over you. But I would say power is that relationship to build kinship with each other. So how do we continue building? Because I think often at times, right, and you know, the reason why queerness and femininity or masculinity, right, how it, however it's celebrated in this dominant culture, right, even though it shouldn't even be gendered, right? How do we continue building those roots and relationships with others? Because I, I often feel that a lot of the times there is damage, there is a lack of acknowledgement of harm between younger generations, mid-age generations, mm-hmm. older generations, and recognize that the people who have fought for our rights, specifically like Black, trans, Indigenous, Brown, women of color, are still the ones who are the most harmed, even though they were the ones at the front lines. And we still, like, even myself as a queer man, like I still benefit from those experiences. And how do we get to build the bridge between those? Yeah, I've often thought about the needs that queer and trans seniors have in communities, because historically, they were so disenfranchised. And, you know, maybe they had a partner for decades, but the partner died before they were able to get into a marriage. And and once the partner died, they were impoverished because they they didn't have property together or a family took it away. And, you know, there's a lot of isolation and poverty. And so I worry about seniors, and I'm getting to that age myself, what happens when there's heat waves and when there's power outages and all? And and what would it look like to have a uh, intergenerational kind of support group or support system where, you know, that we had a list of all the seniors and younger queers, you know, were kind of connected with them to to be supportive and they kind of be mutually supportive. I, I, I don't know, something like that really moves me at times, the thought of it. I really appreciate that. I think this goes back to the idea of localizations and how our elders are becoming more isolated and that's creating a rift in our understanding of our relationship to the work. That is really scary because I often feel that even when I see elders in my space, I always say hi to them or try to talk to them. So I think about my parents, right? Like who will talk to them since mm-hmm. I'm not there? Yeah. Who would you say, I mean, obviously you want to talk to everybody and you do such a great job. You've reached lots of different people, but, but who's your primary audience? obviously more geared towards millennials and Generation Z. But I would say that the audience I have is very a very large landscape of even older people following me. And I, and I think that goes to show that, like, you know, I'm learning from them and they're trying to learn with me. And that gives me hope. Like Isaiah's, Leo and Nkwanda described the challenges facing LGBTQ plus people and solutions to address these growing concerns. Leo explains what local and regional LGBTQ plus pride centers can do. 
So making sure that the information that's being provided on the disaster is actually reaching LGBTQ plus communities, doing that outreach and, you know, that social media push, things like that. Also trainings for LGBTQ plus individuals to know what to do in a disaster or where to go or how to, you know, apply for FEMA funding and things like that. Those are very important needs during disasters that a lot of people don't really know what to do. <laughs> so having that is really important. Start looking into like how can you make your space a shelter for either as a cooling center for heat events or temporary shelter during hurricanes or any other sort of disasters as well. Doing some of that resource sharing and for people to start organizing for different types of items that would be needed during uh, during and after a disaster for LGBTQ plus people. So, you know, toilet paper or hygiene things or money afterwards as well is really important. So I think looking at each of the different s- steps from before to after a disaster and looking at, okay, what is something that we could start working on now? And of course, most importantly, is creating that community so that you know that during a disaster that your the people that you are serving have people that they can rely on during those disasters. And I think that is really key. The study Leo co-authored points out how anti-queer churches that run shelters are the source of some of the discrimination LGBTQ plus people face during extreme weather events. Well, and even on nice days. That said, faith communities that promote equality for LGBTQ plus people can be part of the solution. Faith-based organizations, if they want to be allies to LGBTQ plus communities during disasters, that they need to start partnering with LGBTQ plus community leaders, organizations, centers, really put in the work to show that what they're providing is safe and affirming. Honestly, I think it's just about building that community and, you know, showing yourself as a, as a, as a safe place demonstrating that if that does occur, that you are the first to uh, know how to deal with that situation when it happens. I've seen a lot of churches put up the rainbow flag and the progressive flag, trans flags, like that always signals to me like, oh, okay, I could like actually step into here and feel okay. I also know of churches that, that the preacher is actually queer or trans themselves. I've known queer and trans like climate churches that exist. They're out there for sure. But, you know, if if you're primarily a straight cisgender like church, absolutely showing your allyship is key. Adequate and humane health care is often a huge obstacle for LGBTQ plus people, especially for transgender and non-binary people. Just finding a general practitioner can be an odyssey for many. When extreme weather events hit and increase public health risks, connecting with safe and informed healthcare professionals is essential. Especially as someone who is trans and have also had very difficult access, or yeah, have had very difficult access to affirming care where, you know, if I could go see a doctor for, you know, for anything, um, to not be misgendered or um, treated poorly, um, for being who I am. During disasters, I mean, what's really critical is that the health community needs to 
be trained properly. I think the last that I looked, and I think it's increasing, is that on average, medical doctors in their training only get about five hours of education on LGBTQ plus health and communities. And so that needs to increase. There needs to be more LGBTQ plus doctors and like pipelines for LGBTQ plus individuals to become doctors. You know, even like the systems that are used in hospitals where uh, they use electronic health records, you can opt in and there are ways that doctors have found to be more inclusive um, for people who have varying sexual orientation and gender identities. If you're not trained to do that and you haven't legally updated your name or your gender, which only 11% of trans individuals have been able to successfully do, you're, it's like it's just going to happen. People are like not trained to do it uh, or to, to do it properly and to affirm people respectfully, even if they may want to, they just doesn't necessarily have to do with whether somebody's doing it intentionally or not. It's just the systems aren't there to properly provide the tools and things that people need to actually do that for trans communities. And also hormones are extremely difficult to access already. And so during disasters, there's been quite a few cases that I've seen where it was impossible for trans individuals to actually access those hormones and the amount of mental distress that it caused them while also going through the immense amount of distress of going through a disaster. So it is absolutely necessary, especially for trans individuals, that health professionals and health organizations really take this seriously. Through suffering and even legal discrimination, LGBTQ plus people, along with many other marginalized people, have had to learn how to be resilient. You know, vulnerabilities of LGBTQ plus communities during disasters, but also wanting to highlight, you know, the extreme resilience that the community has had for uh, forever. <laughs> there are, you know, many, because of lack of federal leadership, LGBT LGBTQ plus communities have had to rely on one another in order to survive that is the same during disasters as well um, because of that lack of federal and political leadership. It's important also to kind of tap into that resilience when trying to meet the needs of LGBTQ plus communities within disaster. Noquanda Masego has what might be seen in climate circles as a controversial response to this resiliency born out of unnecessary struggle. I don't like the word resilience, even though the climate conversation is also centered around resilience, because in a way it forces people who are already suffering to then have to suffer even more and suffer in silence because, you know, you have to be resilient, you have to keep getting up. She does see how queer people can and are making contributions. I, I don't want to say empathy because I think there are far bigger things that queer people generally contribute to society and can contribute to this conversation that's not necessarily around empathy. Obviously, empathy is always necessary. I come to the table as a queer person. I come to the table as a Black person. I come to the table as a woman. And what I can contribute, I contribute because... I have the space to do so. I have the resources to do so. 
In her policy papers, Nkwanda writes about the need for a just transition that includes everyone, including the most marginalized. What do we consider as being part of an economy? When we expand that particular conversation, there are then many more people that are included in the just transition debate. Because then we're not just talking about the workers who are pouring petrol at the petrol station or the coal miners or the people that work for ESCOM, for example. We're considering all these different people who are either growing food for their families or doing something else for their families. To have a far more justice-based conversation, we need to have a rethink of what an, an actual economy is and what the actual economy looks like without considering it as something that should solely be focused on those that are, you know, making money from this particular thing or making money from some other thing. This conversation has led Nakwanda and Leo to consider their own next steps. We need the data. And as I'm talking to you, I realize that I should probably actually do the work of contacting Iran D and seeing what information they have and what information they can gather because we can't keep backing away from the conversation simply because there's not enough data. So we have to figure out another way around that. The word just should clearly indicate to us that this is about the just transition the table is big enough, the economy is is big enough. And so we need to take the active steps to actually just expand the table and make sure that more people are included in the conversations, more people are included in the actual doing of the work. Because if we don't do that right now, we're missing a big opportunity to actually redress some of the injustices that have already occurred. We need to do that work. It's serious work that needs to be done. Otherwise, we run the risk of just perpetuating the same inequality, inequities. We run the risk of essentially looking back 100 years from now and saying, damn it, we missed that chance. There's so much to explore in this field. We didn't even touch on like extreme heat or extreme cold or vector-borne diseases. Who knows if that there's like a connection there as well. And especially for example, for extreme heat, many LGBTQ plus individuals have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, especially transgender individuals, um, more so than the cisgender heterosexual population. Um, which can be exacerbated and could cause mortality during heat events. There's very little, there's actually nothing, on whether or not LGBTQ plus individuals face discrimination or are expecting to face discrimination at cooling centers and whether or not that affects if they're going there and receiving that type of safety from extreme heat events. And LGBTQ plus individuals are more disproportionately homeless. So there's just a lot out there that needs to be looked at and studied and researched. A lot of people to talk to about this. Also, like what LGBTQ plus community centers are thinking about this, what health centers are thinking about this, what LGBTQ plus church or an allied church 
are thinking about these types of issues and what are they doing about it. There's just, yeah, there's so much to do. What I love about these conversations with Leo Goldsmith, Isaias Hernandez, and Noquanda Masego is that they expand my own way of looking at these issues while also affirming my place in the climate movement. Noquanda helps me to center my climate work beyond parts per million and decarbonizing the economy. She reminds me that it's about the world we're pursuing and the people in it. We need to have these conversations, not just as a way of trying to address and deal with carbon emissions, but, you know, reimagine the global economy so that it's not just about extraction. Because right now, we live in, in a state of perpetual extraction and we need to figure out how to be better people. We need to figure out how to create an economy that takes care of people rather than the other way around. Nakwanda Maseko is the author of two influential policy papers, Just Transition in South Africa, the case for a gender-just approach, and Unemployment and Sustainable Livelihoods, Just Transition Interventions in the Face of Inequality. Leo Goldsmith is co-author of the new study, Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of Disasters on LGBTQ plus Communities. You will find links to these studies in our show notes. Just visit citizensclimatelobby.org. Under the blog option on the menu, select podcast. We have a dig deeper section there, and you will also find a link to a longer interview with Leo and with Dr. Michael Mendez that was on America Adapts. It's essential listening. And if you are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok, definitely follow Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias Hernandez regularly provides a wealth of information and insights. Please check out QueerBrownVegan.com or any social. I also work with closely with EcoTalk Collective. It's a group of environmentalists communicating climate change and education together. That sounds awesome. Anything else you want to add? Nothing else. I think that's pretty, this has been such a lovely conversation. Coming up, good energy stories. No green which sort of became a stand-in for let's avoid all of the tropes that we have come to associate with the traditional environmentalist. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm Claudia Romo Edelman. And I'm Edie Lash. We're the hosts of Global Goals Cast, a podcast that asks how we can change the world. In every episode, we take on the world's biggest challenges from global warming, poverty, gender equity, good jobs, health, and education. And we don't just identify the problems, we find solutions and speak with people who are making a difference. And you can make a difference too. Mm -hmm. Subscribe to Global Goals Cast at globalgoalscast.org, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Now it is time for the Art House. Anna Jane Joyner, a longtime host of one of my favorite podcast, No Place Like Home, has emerged as a mover and shaker in Hollywood. She founded Good Energy Stories, a story consultancy for the age of climate change. Through GoodEnergyStories.com, Anna Jane and her team provide fresh and engaging resources for TV and movie writers and producers. 
These resources are also super helpful for climate advocates like you and me. Anna Jane connected me with two people on her team to tell us about the initiative and give us all some pointers on telling better climate stories. Turns out, both of these team members happen to be part of the LGBTQ plus community. Ray Binstock. Um, I'm a boxer. So I've been boxing for two years now. I had was lucky enough to have an incredible coach who unfortunately passed away in April of 2022, but really changed my life. I'm a lesbian, so love living in that community. It's a, an interesting time in the LGBTQ world right now, but it's where I've always been. I'm Jewish. I'm always the most Jewish Jew around Gentiles and then the least Jewish Jew around actual Jews because I didn't go to Hebrew school or have a bat mitzvah or anything. But culturally, my family is essentially a large jar full of gefilte fish and white fish salad. I would probably call myself a modern radical feminist, which is definitely a phrase right now that a lot of people jump on. But my interpretation of it is... Is is personal to me and based on a lot of history and stuff. But yeah, that's I don't know. Those are some things about me. I knit. I'm a knitter, making a shirt. Yeah, my name is EJ Baker, and my pronouns are they them. I am queer and non-binary. I am a more or less a secular diasporic Jew, but that's only sometimes relevant to what I'm doing. Yeah, those are the big ones. Um, I'm an artist. I like to think of myself as an activist. I'm a dog parent. All those things. <laughs> uh, EJ, first tell us about Good Energy Stories and what you do. Good Energy is a new nonprofit creative consultancy and content creation organization that is working to advocate for more and better stories uh, around climate change in film and television. We've recently launched our flagship research, which is Good Energy, a playbook for screenwriting in the age of climate change. That is really a holistic resource for screenwriters, showrunners, anybody else who's involved in the film and television storytelling process to hopefully give them essentially like everything you might need to know about how to tell moving and impactful and inspiring stories in the age of climate change. Yeah, so I am creative director of Good Energy. I am in charge of stewarding everything that has to do with how we visually appear in the world, what we look like and what we feel like beyond the incredible content that the editorial team is stewarding. I came to Good Energy as a consultant, as we're sort of like a ragtag crew of <laughs> folks kind of coming together to form this organization from various places. Independent of Good Energy, I am a partner and co-founder at my studio, which is called Maybe Ventures. We're a small creative studio collaborative that's interested in sort of exploring interesting ideas about how to disrupt the static status quo and make the world a more interesting and better place. My role within that, again, is that I'm the visual design person. There's a Tony Cade Bombera quote that I love, which is that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. I am primarily interested in using my skill set, which is art and design and visual beauty, 
to help people imagine that radical, liberatory, much better future <laughs> that we're all working towards. Ray, what is your role? I'm lucky in that I can just describe myself as a writer. It's what I do. I started in theater, so I'm a playwright, but I've expanded into screenwriting in the last few years. I also write prose and essays and kind of just dabble around in a lot of different things. But yeah, I'm a writer and that's what I do. This is going to sound incredibly pretentious, but I see myself as a story explorer because my work has always been driven by the tenet of radical empathy, where it is an attempt always to find commonality among the most disparate of experiences. I don't think so much of, of telling a story, think more about kind of going exploring in various aspects of society, going exploring in, you know, going exploring in differences and similarities and stories emerge from that because it's like physics. I, I hate physics, but I know that in physics, every action has an equal opposite reaction. Like the more you explore in differences, the more drama and collision and conflict and then resolution comes from that. I guess to me, the word, the word storyteller sometimes feels too prescriptive as though there is a story that you set out to tell. And once it's done, it's done. I approach story from a kind of, you know, trying to play with the elements of the story and figure out where they're going to take me before I present it to someone. I shot and produced my first short film last year. It was a 15-minute adaptation of a pilot that I'd written that is essentially about a bunch of queer women of color who invent a lesbian version of Grindr that becomes very popular, and then they become kind of, you know, new queer icons. They're on the 30 under 30 list. They're very, they become representatives of their communities, and then as their personal lives play out, it seems that each of them is secretly not such a perfect icon, you know, not such a perfect representative, which of course is true of everyone because no one's a perfect representative, even if we demand that they, that they be. Eventually we build it as a comedy, which is funny to me because I still don't feel like I ever write comedy. I feel like I write drama that has to be funny because otherwise you would want to jump off a cliff after watching it. You know, this short film was very, there was a lot, there's jokes in it. There's a lot of humor, even as these characters are struggling with mental illness and questioning of their sex, of their gender identity and lying to their friends. I think that for me, comedy and drama can't ever be disentangled. Uh, I worked on a show called Fosse Verdon, which was a historical drama that dealt with a lot of, a lot of misogyny, a lot of like trauma, a lot of stuff like that. And then immediately went to a show called Schmigadoon which was as silly as it sounds. Working on in Fosse Verdon, it was about finding the moments of levity, even if it was the characters having gallows humor. It was about finding moments of levity in awfulness. And with Schmigadoon, it was about finding moments of weight in fun. So I think that it's always a reciprocal relationship. Now, I have to say, I've seen my fair share of doom and gloom Hollywood blockbusters through the years, some of them about climate, and I have a feeling that you're trying to steer storytellers away from these types of presentations about climate change. I hate the phrase, the end of the world, because there's no such thing. The world, short of every nuclear bomb on Earth going off all at once, 
there is no such thing as the end of the world. People are going to, people continue living through, people live through the Black Plague. People live through the decimation of China in the 12th century. We're a very hardy species. And so the end of the world narrative to me is designed to give people a sense of peace because it's like a movie ending. No matter how sad or upsetting the movie is, once it's over, you're free and you can walk away and the burden is lifted. That will never happen with the world, quote unquote. People will survive pretty much any trauma that they possibly can. So I think that one thing about climate storytelling is getting rid of that notion that the, the future is is so radically different from the one we have right now. You know, it's radically different in the way that my parents didn't grow up with cell phones. That's a radical difference. But did my parents wear pants and I wear pants? Like that level of similarity is there. And I think we need to bring that to climate storytelling. You know, so getting rid of the apocalyptic aspect is one very major thing, because if people can never imagine themselves existing in the same world as the effects of climate change, they're not going to do anything about it until it's too late. There was sort of an assumption that a climate story is an apocalypse story and nobody wants to write an apocalypse story or most people don't write an apocalypse story because it like personally, emotionally, it feels like scary and hard to deal with when it feels like so like deeply connected to your own life. So we wanted to create a feeling that was inspiring and intriguing and had a hint of the darkness, but wasn't like too depressing or preachy or any of those things. So what else have movies and TV shows gotten wrong? Like what are you advising storytellers to avoid? Getting rid of the humorless overbearing concerned about climate stereotype of a person. I love the West Wing. It's dated in that this is a show about the most liberal of liberals and they're all and most of the show makes fun of the environmental lobby and makes fun of environmentalists and treats them like they're crazy hippies who are living in tents. That's a very kind of, you know, 90s, early 2000s view of climate, which is that it's like people who are getting upset, who are getting upset about the rare links being endangered when there's like people who don't have jobs. That's a big issue. But like we know now that it's not about being a humorless hippie. It's about any investment whatsoever in a future of happiness or peace or any kind of healthful prosperity for yourself, the people you love, the people who you don't know, but with whom you share the immutable human bond. We need to move past this concept that caring about collective future somehow makes you an unlikable person. It's a way of separating climate, the caring about the climate from relatability. In one way, it's a future that you can never see yourself being a part of. And in another way, it's a person you would never want to hang out with. Those two tropes have been around in climate storytelling for way too long. They have done way more harm than good, especially with the parody of the climate activist. It's like, like much of the humor that we've been re-examining over the last few years. It's just not funny. It's not a joke that like keeps on giving. It's a joke that like gives once and then shuts down forever. EJ, you are a phenomenal visual designer and you promote amazing visual storytelling through your design. I love the way you design the Good Energy Stories website. And I bet you can provide some pretty great insights for climate design. So talk about that. 
Yeah. So we initially started working on the brand for good energy in summer of 2021, which when we were speaking now in our early summer of 2022, coming up on a year ago. And one of the prime directives about what the brand could and could not be is no green, which sort of became a stand-in for let's avoid all of the tropes that we have come to associate with the traditional environmentalist movement. And that maybe kind of feel a little dated or cliche or trite at this point. So no polar bears, no polar bears sitting on a melting ice flow, no globe from space. It shouldn't be green. (laughs) And in fact, like we should have no green whatsoever (laughs) involved in the color palette. So then as a designer, you kind of think like, okay, well, if it's not green, what is it? (laughs) My, uh, co-partner at Maybe Ventures, Bruno Almeida, had led some really amazing research with screenwriters early on that surfaced some insights around the feelings that we were trying to elicit with this brand. So we knew that we really wanted to sort of like allude to a sense of like magic and wonder, but it shouldn't feel like totally happy sparkly, bright, wonderful all the time, because obviously (laughs) an urgent and in many ways terrifying issue that we're thinking about. So then when you think about color, and it's not going to be green, (laughs) what's it going to be? What's going to be sort of like the, the anchor of the palette? And it started from a place of like, okay, we've got a palette of blues, essentially, which work well in terms of saturated bold color that's also not completely overwhelming it can almost play the role of a neutral it can kind of like play nicely with other colors and as we sort of evolved the brand started using it in more and more applications we started to lean more and more into the sort of accent colors that come in so we've got like kind of a golden yellow and a bright red and a bright pink as we've kind of evolved and made illustrations and sort of tried the brand at various applications, we've sort of developed a balance of how to use that palette with imagery in a way that feels really rich and vibrant and fresh and unexpected, hopefully. Oh yeah, it is absolutely fresh. There's this whimsy to the work with like this hint of something off, something, I don't know, even creepy, especially with the images that are both familiar and also not. The illustrations and the collages are really sort of the heart and soul of the good energy visual identity. Part of that comes from that style of collage and and art making is sort of like my go-to in terms of like my personal work and and what I tend to gravitate towards. Obviously very within my wheelhouse and something that I was happy to do all day long. So that was how we originally sort of like came upon that idea. It works really well because it allows us to take the symbols and imagery that evoke visuals that you're associating with the traditional climate look are getting to. So you're like thinking about the natural world, but in a way that feels really different from what you're used to seeing. As we've figured out different applications, we've sort of finessed what imagery we use, where, and how. So the collages always have a lot of plant forms, often kind of like animal imagery. There tends to be sort of like a, it's it's a collage aesthetic, which lends itself to really playing with scale. So you're not like realistically creating like a 
to scale composition, but you have like a giant fern next to like a leopard or something like that. So we've sort of been able to kind of develop this language that's essentially, uh, we can use it in kind of like a decorative way alongside content. Um, if it's not like explicitly illustrating specific content, but we've also developed a series of illustrations to go along with the content on the playbook itself. And those are, we're much more likely to use people and human faces there. And those are sort of more designed to like actually illustrate the content itself. And it's still an evolving and living thing as we like, we'll be continuing to make new imagery um, for content we have and for new content. But yeah. Okay. Ray, get ready because I'm going to pick your brain in a moment about writing and telling better climate stories. EJ, the Good Energy Stories website has these excellent resources for storytellers, um, in particular a playbook for story writing in the age of climate change, which includes this excellent climate story cheat sheet and the climate story spectrum. I like that climate story is on a spectrum, that you can tell a climate story in many ways. Uh, and you even have some amazing art there, um, and you can provide some inspiration for s possible strange climate stories. Um, there's a section in the playbook called Global Weirdings, which is all about sort of like, let's talk about some of the like freakier, more surreal effects of climate change and how, as a writer, you might be inspired to incorporate those into your story world. For those, we did a series of spot illustrations that are really just like taking the actual very sort of surreal strange visual of these real things that are happening like blood snow and ghost forests and lake bed full of arsenic dust and all these ideas and i think it's heightened by the the illustration style it sort of adds to that slightly otherworldly feeling but it is like completely real it's happening today no, it is, it is absolutely excellent visual work. I keep pointing climate organizations to the Good Energy Stories website because it's just such a great model. Yeah. Uh, climate movement needs design. Now, Ray, you told us what TV and movie makers need to avoid when telling climate stories. What do you think they need to begin including? Normalization. And I, I hate the word normalization because it gets used way too much these days, I think. But I do think that in the case of climate storytelling, normalizing solar panels, just that, the fact that solar panels save so much energy, they're such, they, they make such a difference. And they're so easy for a lot of people, a lot of middle class households, so easy to have them. And people don't, just because it's not what they grew up with, their parents don't recognize it, they don't recognize it. That's not an excuse anymore. So if TV can normalize having these things on your house, electrifying your house, getting your water, like all of these, even just the smaller things, that's not going to stop climate change. That's not the real problem. But it's a start in terms of people taking it seriously to take steps in their own lives to adjust to it and realize that it's not going to like change who they are as a person or the way they live their lives. It's just, you know, it's like getting a cell phone now that cell phones are out. Like, Get a cell phone, get solar panels. I am not a plot creator. Plot has always been kind of the thing that's least interested me about storytelling. I really come at things from a point of view first of character 
of who the characters are and what's compelling about them. And then about structure, you know, which means essentially to me, it's the math of storytelling. It's kind of like doing the math the right way so that your audience feels the rise, the peaks and ebbs of emotion in the places you want them to, for it to move them. When it comes to climate storytelling, a really valuable side of it is just the informational side of telling writers, giving writers, you know, an idea of what to write about, what's interesting, what's exciting, what's a possible threat. All of that is super important. But then there's also the, you know, I was just talking about kind of like apocalypse and unsympathetic characters representing climate. What I bring to the consulting wing of Good Energy is a focus on character and structure, not as things that have to be forced into a climate-based model, but as things that rise organically from the reality of climate. You know, you want to tell a story about an underdog who is trying to change their own circumstances, maybe wants to to be their, their champion of their people, etc. There's a, you know, there's a climate refugee possibility there, just as much as there is poor kid from a trailer park who tries to make it on Broadway. But I work in terms of emotions, the audience's emotion and the character's emotions. What I bring is the ability to see how those emotions can hook into the realities of climate resiliency, climate disasters, all of those things, and, you know, start closing the gap between stories that writers feel like they already know how to tell and these new stories by showing them that ultimately everything they know about character and story is totally applicable to climate. Conversely, everything they know about climate could be relevant to their characters. It's just an issue of getting rid of the stigma of climate so that you can start exploring it for what it really is, which is an incredibly rich basis for character and for, you know, a dramatic structure. So you want stories that stir up emotions, but like which emotions? So honestly, I hope to stir up outrage. The youth these days, people who are below a certain age, outrage is their birthright. You know, and that's what I admire so much about people who are even a little bit younger than me, is that they are so ready to be outraged at things they absolutely should be outraged about. Whereas I feel like for me, there was so, we were really, we're really stuck in this place of like, kind of depression and hopelessness, which is not a fun place to be. Outrage is also not fun, but it's a lot more active. So I would like to stir outrage in people who aren't already feeling it. Like, you know, people whose view of the world, like climate change is kind of like, oh, it's this new thing. Well, I guess that I'll read about it in the news. I want them to realize how deep this goes and how wrong the reaction to it has been. And hope. <laughs> I mean, people are always asking me, like, where do you find hope? Is there a hope trope we need to avoid? I don't know. Hope gets a bad rap these days. Everyone beats up on hope because it's, you know, it's like a blind emotion or it's like it's hope means you're waiting for other people to do the right work, to do the right work. And I don't agree with that. I think hope, I think hope is one of the most innately human. I mean, <laughs> I'm a Jew, so we're very used to dread and shame, but the opposite of dread and shame is hope because no matter how much you fail, there's always a possibility to do better. You know, you hope that you will. Hope is the anticipation of good things in a world that tends to deliver bad. I want people to feel hope 
while also feeling outraged. I want them to feel empowered enough to follow hope beyond its most passive form. And what do you want to see included in movies and TV shows that touch on climate? It's not an emotion, but the word I keep coming back to is mundanity. Is the fact that it's, and it relates to what I was saying about getting rid of the apocalypse version of a climate future, which is that the more people see climate change as this encroaching alien storyline in reality that's going to turn us all into the Hunger Games, the less people are going to take it seriously, the less people are going to feel, the more the, they're either not going to take it seriously or they're going to feel totally destroyed. And they're going to say, what's the point of working on, of caring about anything that's in my life right now, if it's all going to turn into the Hunger Games? What I want to inspire in people is a sense of continuity between their future and the one that's coming. I don't know. This isn't really, I guess it's not emotion. I want me, I want people to feel, I want people to feel invested and invested, not necessarily in the movement, but in their own futures. Because again, you can't get, it's, there's no world ending. You know, this stuff is very, stuff is going to happen and you're going to still be alive. Yeah. And, you know, I'm beating up on the Hunger Games, but the Hunger Games is also, I mean, it's got, you know, a bunch of ghettos that people have been put into because they're disenfranchised by their government. And then it takes people who are marginalized and sets them against each other for sport. And everyone calls it a fun bonding experience. That's the real world that we're in right now. Like, that's what TikTok and the NFL are. I find that the most compelling versions of the future or of alternate worlds are ones that, you know, on a sliding scale of directness, give us a version of the lives we're already living and just add enough strangeness to make it less, to make it unrecognizable at the beginning. So not a utopia and not a dystopia, something more, well, actually almost less, something mundane, a world where I can see myself as a character. And, and what about like, I don't know, a bad guy, like the struggle? What is the struggle in climate stories you want to see? I want people to feel determined and I want people to empathize with each other because we are being set against each other in a way that is as old as time. My stories are for the people who have yet to really understand the power that they hold in this current situation. The vast majority of the people who are being affected by climate change and by climate disasters are impoverished people, people of color, communities that are not part of the like little knot of quote unquote developed Western, largely white nations. It's the people who have historically been used by others who are now being fed to the front lines of climate change. I want to create empathy among those who are more protected for those people and for their vulnerability. I want people to, I want to create a world in which you're saying, I'm going to act now, not because I am in immediate danger, but A, because I will be at some point, and B, because people who could be me, there but for the grace of God go I, as though as those people, those people are in danger. Those people are losing everything. And I would want them to come and help me. I want them to stand up for me if 
the tables were turned and it was me who was being flooded out of my home. I think capitalism as a structure is extremely individualistic and it encourages people to think of themselves as at the end of the day, their only line of defense. Like if I'm the only person I can really protect is myself and my own. And if I'm protecting someone else, that means less for me. And that is not the case. I want my work to make people feel determined to act. I want them to feel empowered, but I really want them to feel empowered in a way that is connective rather than individualistic. A hurricane isn't going to kill one person. A drought isn't going to follow one person around like a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's going to be huge numbers of people at once. And the more we normalize, again, that freaking word, the more we normalize collective action in the face of climate disasters and climate change, the more we prepare ourselves for a future that's coming one way or the other. All right, let me just say I'm totally loving this conversation. And I imagine that for you listening to the podcast, that it's giving you some really fresh approaches and ideas. I know personally, I'm going to think a lot about the emotions I want to stir up in the stories I tell. I, I'm finding that good energy stories is just such an incredible resource for all of us. Anna Jane's thesis statement has always been that stories are what change the world. I come from the school of Tony Kushner, one of my favorite playwrights, who says in the same breath that theater is always political. At the same time, theater is not direct action. And it's not. Theater doesn't create laws. It doesn't stop violence. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't stand in between someone and a speeding car. But it shifts the consciousness and the feelings around it to the point where it might help someone decide to stand in front of the car if they're ever in that position. And theater, TV, films, right now, those are the most important forms of communication they have because they bind us together. We share them. These stories that we're telling, they're not going to stop the climate crisis. The people who absorb these stories are going to stop the climate crisis. But if there are no stories giving them a sense of how that could happen or helping them see themselves doing that, we're just going to continue with the old story. And the old story is how we got here in the first place. Before we end this conversation, can we talk just for a bit as queer people? I mean, Ray, you're a lesbian, EJ, you're gender non-binary, and I'm gay. And I don't know about you, but when I first began my climate work, I experienced two things. One was a curiosity. It came from this question, or I guess I should say a query, <laughs> that I kept asking myself, what is a queer response to climate change? Like, how does it affect us differently? What do we have to offer? And the people around me were so confused by this question, including my husband. He's like, what are you talking about? It turned out to be a really excellent question for me. But I also experienced this weird isolation when I went into climate spaces. Like no one was rude or prejudiced against me for being gay, but these spaces were like super straight. And there were a lot of older, white, middle-class people. I ultimately found my way and I experienced this super hearty welcome, but I definitely felt like an outlier. I came, you know, with a very different worldview. I mean, so I have been probably quite lucky in that I haven't had that much uh, that much sort of deep interaction with the parts of the climate movement that 
are criticized for being very white or very heteronormative um, or sort of non-inclusive or, or undiverse uh, in all those different ways. But I think it's kind of exactly what you said. I think anybody who has some kind of experience of marginalization and, you know, for me, I think it's, it's, nuanced and complex as a, a queer non-binary person who's also a white person, you know, kind of sitting at intersections of marginalization and privilege. But I think anybody who has any kind of experience with marginalization is already going to be really practiced at thinking critically about sort of the dominant way that the world works, which is a, <laughs> a very essential thought process. Um, when we're thinking about climate work and we're really thinking about like, okay, like we have to really radically rethink our relationship to land and to the world around us and the non-human creatures that we share the world with. Um, so I think just kind of like that already being positioned as outside of the, the sort of dominant narrative is a useful perspective, not just for me and as a queer perspective, but for anybody with any kind of marginalized identity doing this work. I'm remembering like those first dozen or so climate events I attended. And there were just so many older people there, parents, many of whom were grandparents. And they were like so deeply moved with this message that urged us, you know, to do it for the children and the grandchildren. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, but I don't have any, you know, I have like no DNA in this game. I mean, I have no children or grandchildren and sure I can stir up empathy for someone else's and, you know, I have nieces and nephews, but I would, I don't know, be a little provocative and say things like, well, you know, like besides doing for the children, what else you got? <laughs> I mean, like, why else should I care? And I, I definitely didn't want to invalidate how powerful that message was for them. I, I guess I just wanted to find other talking points to engage younger people without offspring and queer folks like me without children. Women who are not interested in attracting men are the exact opposite of what this world is made for. The world is designed around what attracts straight men and in, you know, to a lesser degree, what attracts gay men. But if you are a woman, you're already disadvantaged. And then if you're a woman who has no interest in what men find attractive or what men want, you are at the greatest disadvantage. You very quickly have to figure out how to be able to interact with things that you have no interest in, how to find things important or worth your attention that to you are entirely meaningless and you don't give a shit about. I guess that that is a little bit of my feeling about the climate movement in relations to the queer community is it's like, yeah, I, you know, if you don't have kids, that's, then that's not your motivation, but you were someone's kid once and you might hope that if you had been a kid and were, you know, about to fall off a cliff, someone would have looked at you and said like, Hmm, I don't want that person to die. Even if they are a child and I find them annoying, but you know, as a, as a lesbian, there is so much that I am, that I'm asked to do that I have no interest in doing, but I do it because I know that I'm going to be able to keep living my life because of it. And it's also going to help other people. All right, EJ, this may be a stupid question and I'm not opposed to asking stupid questions, but as someone who is gender non-binary, 
you recognize that gender is on a spectrum or even outside of a spectrum. There are more than just two options, male or female. So I'm wondering, how might that apply to climate change? I mean, is there a non-binary way of looking at climate? Whether non-binary people in general are better at thinking about nuance, I don't know if I can make that claim. <laughs> it's definitely not always easy for me. I mean, I'm a I'm a Libra, so I have like a a deep and complex relationship with nuance <laughs> all the time. <laughs> also, probably why I gravitate towards the aesthetics. Uh, from my perspective, and, and I would hope that this is a this is a fairly common perspective is that it, it's so abundantly clear that with a challenge as complex as climate change, any kind of like super binaristic black and white, like this is the number one silver bullet solution is just not going to be effective. Being able to kind of like approach a complex problem with an understanding of nuance is always <laughs> always a helpful thing. Um, and I don't know how much of it that I can truly attribute to like a, if it, since I am already comfortable with fluidity around gender and, and those ideas that are so kind of like deeply ingrained in society, maybe that makes me more open to sort of questioning other so-called truths. You're really totally confirming to me this belief that LGBTQ plus people bring a lot to the table. In fact, I will be so bold to say that the climate movement needs us. I mean, and obviously it needs everyone, but we bring unique perspectives, experiences, and skills to the party. The queer community has uh, a strong history of figuring out how to survive in tight places and figuring out how to make do that is massively what needs to happen in climate change. We need a climate stonewall. We really do. And gay people have already had a stonewall. So why don't we just do it again for climate? Mm, excellent point. And if you listening do not know what the 1969 Stonewall Uprising was all about, well, I think that's excellent homework to increase your queer cultural competency. Visit goodenergystories.com to see the many resources available and sign up for their occasional newsletter. I have links to all our guests and these resources in our show notes. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org and then look for the podcast option under the blog menu item. If you have an idea for the Art House, please feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. It's time for our good news story. Today's story comes from our guest, Leo Goldsmith. He tells us about a new online resource designed specifically for LGBTQ plus people. It was created by Vanessa Raditz, one of the co-authors of the Queer and Present Danger Study. They started a project called Q Ready 
where so far they have a really great kind of checklist for LGBTQ plus individuals to kind of go and see like, what is it that I need during a disaster and where should I go? We're planning on kind of building upon that and doing a bit more community building and seeing what uh, kind of changes that we can make in that space. Thanks, Leo. Yeah, it's a wonderful list to help all of us create a 72-hour kit. You don't even have to be LGBTQ+. You can find QReady and a lot more of LGBTQ+, sustainability and resiliency resources at Out for Sustainability. Just visit outfors.org. That is the number four and the letter S. Outfors.org. If you have good news you want to share on the show, email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Many thanks to my guests, Leo Goldsmith, Naquanda Maseco, Isaias Hernandez, E.J. Baker, and Ray Binstock. If you want to go deeper into the topic of LGBTQ plus and climate change, definitely check out our show notes. I also have a full transcript of today's show. Just go to citizensclimatelobby.org and look for the podcast, which is under the blog menu item. I also have a link to a bunch of resources that you will like, including some original LGBTQ plus radio plays about climate change. You will also find a link to a new queer-themed climate novel. It doesn't have to be this way. South African author Alistair McKay tells the story of three queer friends trying to navigate an increasingly fractured, violent, and unstable world ravaged by climate collapse and rampant inequity, which sounds super heavy. Well, you know, because it, it is, but I think what you're going to love about the book is the, the way they find a way forward, their resiliency and like their friendship and how important that is. That book again is It Doesn't Have to Be This Way by Alistair McKay. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 74 of Citizens Climate Radio. You made it through the one of the longest episodes ever. And don't worry, we return to our 30-minute format next month. I will feature an Iranian-American teenager who is part of the growing movement of young conservatives in America engaged in climate change. You will also learn about an incredible graphic story written for young people. It gets right to the heart of their feelings about climate change and provides action items to move forward. If you like what you hear on this podcast, there's some wonderful things you can do to help us. One is leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That actually makes a huge difference. And if you want to support the work we do financially, visit citizensclimateeducation.org to learn how you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution, which leads to climate change. Yes, there's been a huge climate bill that is going to pass. We're hoping it's going to pass, but there's more we can do. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference, and we want to tell you about it. Visit cclusa.org slash price on carbon. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Mortarano, Flannery Winchester, Kitty Zorkreski, and Steve Valk. 
moral support from Madeline Perra. The music on today's show comes from EpidemicSound.com. Please share Citizen Climate Radio with your friends and colleagues in social media, emails, while you're running, whatever. <laughs> Let them know we exist. You can find our show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at northernspiritradio.org. We have a Citizens Climate Radio Facebook group you can check out, and you can follow us on Twitter at Citizen C Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, radio, at Citizen C Radio. And you can tweet at me directly at P2Sun, the letter P, the number 2, S-O-N, at P2Sun. Once again, find our show notes at citizensclimatelobby.org. There you have links to our guests and a dig deeper section. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. <laughs>